Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent, here with Stephen Moriarty. As always, g'day, Steve. How are you, Pete? I'm very well, thanks. A bit of a cold, but I think I'm through the worst of it now. So today we're going to cover off books numbers five and six in our top 10 investment books of all time. Uh, So some interesting choices today. Let's kick off with yours, Steve. Your choice is uh, The Success Equation by Michael Mabusin, Untangling uh, Skill and Luck in Business, Sports and Investing. So it's a book that covers across multiple disciplines but obviously has a a key investment theme within it so let's uh, start with tell us why you chose that book as your selection today and why you thought it was such a good book it was written in 2012 um so it's you know roughly 10 years old about 250 pages and 11 chapters the overall theme of the book is basically to sort of get people to understand the role or the, the balance between skill and luck. And so how do you distinguish the difference between skill, you know, what's skill and what's luck? He gives you some tools to understand them, mean reversion, you know, that sort of thing. And then he, he at the end, which is sort of like the price of admission at loan, as they say, is um, a chapter called The Art of Guesswork. And he, he takes you through sort of 10 principles, you know, use statistics, you know, do this, think about base rates. So I can tell you the reason why I think it's a really good book is because I have an e-copy and I have a hard copy. And that, which is brainless, I know, but that's when I know I really like books, when I've got an e-copy and I get a, a hard copy as well. It's really good because it has so much to offer investors in terms of understanding where your returns come from. Basically, you know, if I'm brutal, how little role you actually play in delivering those returns, Um, which is, you know, let's be honest, it's a bit of a humbling thought when you look at something and say, oh, yes, I'm really skilled at it, and then you sort of go through this book and go, actually, I'm kind of skilled, but, geez, there's a whole lot of luck involved. And often, Pete, as you would know, people can buy into the right asset class purely on luck because, you know, they heard it from a friend or, you know, something like that. They came into some money when the market was low. They can get a really great return and then they can think it's skill. And um, I think you see a bit of it at the moment in sort of Bitcoin trading and crypto stuff, you know. There's a little bit of these young fellas who think they're really skilled when in in a lot of cases it's actually just pure luck. Yeah, I think I heard an interview with Robert Schiller where somebody said, oh, you know, if there's one thing you could understand about financial markets, what would it be? And he said, I I wish I could uh, differentiate how much 
of a role does yeah. luck play? Because I think we're notoriously bad at distinguishing skill from luck. I think, I guess, because uh, we recreate world events based on some kind of a story or narrative, you know, based on our underlying beliefs. But I think as well, because, you know, we, we're really drawing conclusions from a tiny sample size. Essentially, one thing has happened and therefore we yeah. drill a story through it. Um, and I think in particular, I think we're all guilty of this. When things go well, we tend to think, oh, well, you know, how, how skillful I've been. And when things go badly, we sort of think, well, that, that must be bad luck. <laughs> I mean, is it, wh- why are we so bad at distinguishing skill from luck? Is it really because of that sort of narrative fallacy? That's definitely a part of it. A lot of it is ego. And, and what I mean by that is it's ego in a sort of a little bit of a negative tone but also about subjectivity. And so, you know, as you just said there, most people don't go, oh, mate, I've, I've just had five years on the stock market. I got unbelievably lucky. Nobody says that. Everybody says, and like you say, you make up a story about how smart you were about buying the stock market and, you know, blah, 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 and, geez, aren't I clever? Um, because that's the way that we like to project our personalities. And so... The other thing that comes out of this book, which I think is really critical, and it's just a simple passing line where he says, um, and I'll quote it to you, part of the reason we are no good at disguising between distinguishing sorry, between luck and skill is because we're not well-versed in statistics. And as you know, Ed Thorpe, who we talk a lot about with the Kelly Criterion, said the same thing. He said, if people understood risk, return and probabilities, they do a lot better. Um, so when you look at it, it even, even when you do basic stats about probabilities and predictions, because essentially what you're doing is saying, I'm going to put money out today in an asset class because I'm going to get, you know, I hope to get more back in the future. So that's a decision under uncertainty. And what Mabowson really highlights is this idea about skill and luck and saying when there's more luck involved, you really need to look at the base case. When there's more skill involved, you can look at the more specific individual case. So the example would be this. If you and I had a competition to do a coin toss, right? Now, we know it's 50-50, right? Your guess is as good as mine. So if after 100 flips, it might be that you win, it's probably not because you got better skill, but because you just got luckier in that, that sample size, as you said. Now, that's because coin flipping has a lot of luck involved. If you look at the base rate, that's where you get to. If you then said to me, okay, now let's play Tiger Woods in golf, do you think there's a lot of luck involved? The argument is obviously, well, no, there's not. There's a lot of skill involved. There's a little bit of luck, but there's predominantly skill. When that comes about, you want to say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to focus on the specifics of the individual case. Tiger Woods has been practising since he was two. Stephen Moriarty took it up at 53 and he's played for two years. Okay, I'm going with Tiger Woods. But if I said to Tiger Woods, well, at the, you know, at the clubhouse, we're going to do coin flips, that's where I might be as good as Tiger Woods, not because of skill, but because of luck. The base rates are really, really important to keep you an idea of where you are 
in terms of the sort of what what Mabowson calls the skill luck continuum. You know, so how much luck is there in golf and guitar playing as opposed to how much luck is there in the stock market and coin flips? And, of course, as you know, there's a lot of luck involved in the stock market returns because you can't, you don't have total control like Tiger Woods does over his swing, his breathing, you know, his diet. So, in other words, he's got a he's got control of a very few number of variables. In the stock market, there's there's thousands of variables, and you can't have control over hardly any of them. So, you really got to, in that case, account for luck in looking at your returns. I think we saw some of this narrative fallacy a bit over the past couple of years when the, when the markets have been going up. You know, this uh, this shows that. Uh, you know, my strategy works and, you know, I've, I've, uh, yeah. there's a certain level of skill involved because I've done the research. Uh, when the market was going down, especially in the early part of 2020, there was a big narrative shift to, well, this is just bad luck. I mean, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, that is true. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there was a, a random event came along and it um, uh, battered financial markets uh, pretty severely over a short period of time. But I suppose the thing, the, the thing is that, uh, the, the drivers could be different, but basically markets do go up and down um, and you can't attribute um, a rising market to skill and then a falling market to, to luck. But what is the um, what is the uh, remedy for that? Is it presumably focusing on process over outcome? I think uh, Mabusin uses an example from uh, the healthcare sector of um, uh, there was an issue with uh, catheter infections and the introduction yeah. of a simple five-step a checklist actually eliminated the infections and presumably these, the analogy there is something that can be brought across to investing. If you've got a, a series of processes that you follow, uh, the outcomes might not always be perfect, but at least you've followed the process and not been uh, beholden solely to the outcome. You're spot on there. And, you know, we'll talk about this later with this next wonderful book <laughs> of your choice. <laughs> but the, the idea is that pro, you want to focus, and what Mabalson says is you f- just focus on the process because what he's saying is you can't adjust for luck. Now, what he's also saying is, look, you can take it into account, but not many people do. So when fund managers predict future returns, they don't often, you know, as Talib talks about, they don't have a, a range of returns which says, it could be anything from zero to 25, right? Because most people would go, well, that's hopeless. That doesn't tell me anything. So they get more specific. But what they don't say is using logic, you probably get 12 points or, but if I give, you know, if I give you some luck, you might get 15 or you might get eight. So the, the problem with luck is that there's no way to really sort of account for it. And so that makes it really, really hard. And what he says is, though, you want to focus on the process. And that's where, you know, like Warren Buffett talks about his four filters. Uh, Monash Parbrai talks about his 70-point checklist. And so, again, if you just, what that does, Pete, is it takes the ego and the subjectivity out of it. And it's again gets back to this point I often make, the reason why algorithms do better than humans is because they're not subjective. 
And so they just buy and sell on the commands. They don't buy and then go, oh, I'll just hold it for a little bit longer because it's made more money. These non-emotional trading rules, and that's really the way that a lot of investors or a lot of successful investors make money by by refining their process, whether it's a an investment process or a trading process, you know. But as you said before, you've got to have that, you've got to know what distribution you're working in and, you know, is it skill or luck? Because you wouldn't want to be playing Tiger Woods and saying, mm. I've just got a feeling I'm going to get lucky over 18 holes, right? It's just not going to happen. But that can happen in a coin tossing contest because there's no skill involved. It's a really sort of interesting thing. But the thing that surprises me is that luck is a really, I mean, when you think about it, it's a really terrible thing because if you admit to luck, you sort of tend to think that, you know, like how many people would say, oh, those lotto people deserve to win, right? They didn't win. They didn't deserve it. They just got lucky with picking the numbers, right? So you sort it, you know what I mean? It's sort of, oh, yeah, he got lucky in that last tournament and, you know, on the last hole. And you, it just takes the edge off the success or the skill part of it, you know, sort of like, oh, well, yeah, but he got lucky. And so you tend to sort of think, oh, well, if he hadn't had that lucky, he wouldn't have got there. And I think that's, I don't think that's really the way to look at it because I think it was uh, Talib who said, you know, the thing about luck is it's really democratic. And what he meant was, or what he was saying was, everybody gets good luck and gets bad luck. That's the way life sort of works, you know. Um, and so in that way, it fairly well evens out for everybody. And that's why he talks about exposing yourself to as many positive black swans as you can because you'll get lucky, mm. you know, and that's the that's the way, you, so long as you recognise it, that's the best way to go. Yeah, so I think um, one of the interesting concepts here is, and you, as you touched on there with the golf analogy, that if there's more skill involved in a, I think in a sphere. I mean, it, I mean, if you're playing against Tiger Woods, that's one thing. But if you're looking at the world number one against the world number two, then uh, almost by definition, the higher level of skill means that luck becomes more important. And I yes, think in, absolutely. You know, so I think uh, Mabusin uses the baseball analogy. You know, that if you went back to the 1940s, you know, someone could be a 400 hitter, but that just hasn't happened since then because. I guess the difference between the best and worst is narrow, but also the skill of the opposition has improved. I think in financial markets, we've seen, you know, there's been a big increase, I think, in the level of analysis and skill. So, you know, in terms of how that impacts us, much harder to outperform um, a stock market index with good stock picking, partly because there's more skill around. And therefore, the the, the luck factor probably um, comes in much more than it used to so I mean there is that that aspect to it in terms of being a good stock picker harder than it used to be and I think as you've mentioned before uh, that means that picking asset class uh, valuation and market cycles is probably more important than your stock picking ability um, there, there is uh, one other interesting um, idea that um, Abusin introduces and that is how you should alter your strategy based upon your standing, i.e., you know, the David versus Goliath idea, it, it, would, be, it would be stupid you know, if, if um, David and Goliath had the same strategy because they've got different standings. And I, I think this this has an important uh, aspect or part to play in investing. I think, you know, for example, people talk a lot about their way being the only way, but 
for somebody starting out, they might take a very different strategy to someone who's just, I don't know, sold a business and uh, come into a yes. few million dollars or you know, somebody who's inherited some wealth. Well, it, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to me to um, to, to drop all of that, that money into a, a global index fund when, as we've mentioned before, valuations are at record highs and those index funds are so heavily tied now in terms, they're so correlated now to the US market. It just, you know, obviously, you know, your strategy really needs to be based upon your personal circumstances and, and standing. Yeah, you, you look at, you know, you, everybody drops Warren Buffett into their conversation but the funny thing I find is not many of these people seem to get Warren Buffett compounding returns. You know, you mentioned a couple of, might have been in the last series, we talked about, you know, where you mentioned the super investors of Graham and Doddville, you know, where Buffett tells his story, you know, there's eight different types of investors, but they all use succeed using value investors. But Taleb also says, yeah, but when you've got, if you've got a population of 10 and you're outstanding over 20 years, I'll give you all my money. But if there's a population like fund managers of, you know, over a lifetime, millions, well, you're going to get a Warren Buffett purely by randomness. You know, somebody's going to stand out. And so I think that's really, really important. What it can tell you as investors is that the return will be really dependent upon the process. And if you can't control all the variables, then you really need to account for a lot of luck. And so this is why I'm, I'm not critical of economics. I'm just merely pointing out something which sounds really counterintuitive, which is economists are terrible forecasters. And secondly, it's got very little to do with stock market returns. The, and it, you can look at the results. And let me just give you one quick one. Last year, the US uh, GDP fell 2%. The market went up 21%. Now, there's plenty of other instances where GDP and stock market returns are completely out of alignment. And Schiller does the same thing with earnings and price. Mabowson talks about return on invested capital. And he uses that and says, you know, you get a company that's got great return on invested capital or return on equity, but it eventually mean reverts as well. And so he's got these really good chapters on building skill and dealing with luck and also reversion to the mean. And they're, they're really good chapters because as we sort of teach folks in our course, you don't intuitively understand mean reversion. You know, it just, it's just doesn't come to you. And part of it is even harder when you, re when you don't realise that there's you're being lucky, you know, and that's why we talk about market cycles because what I'm sort of saying to people is, Listen, that was good that you started investing in 1982 if you knew about, you know, low capes and low valuations. If you didn't, really, you're just getting lucky, you know. So I think those sorts of things are really important. And normally we just hang with, you know, meet, um, what do they call it, recency bias. But I think the, the thing you were talking about before is if you have a look at, like I, I went back and thought, God, you know, like how many times in my life was I lucky, you know, on certain paths that I took? And in the in I've read over the years in books, you know, Steve Jobs was lucky because Bill Gates bought Apple stock and he bought Apple stock so Apple wouldn't go broke and then they would come and knock up Microsoft as a monopoly. 
Bill Gates, in in turn, got lucky from IBM, who said, no, 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 we don't want the software. You're going to have that shit. We just want the hardware. And, of course, you know, software turned out to be where it was at. Jeff Bezos got, you know, 150 grand from his parents, right? And so what you do is, even in the start of the book, McBowson tells this really great story where he says, I went for an interview, I think at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or something, and he said he noticed that the the CEO, there was six, there were six people being interviewed. He noticed in the waste paper bin that the, the CEO had a, a Washington Redskins thing thrown up. And Mabowson said, Oh, you know, the Redskins, hey, you know, good to see I'm in good company. Anyway, so he said the guy talks to him for 15 minutes out of the interview of 15 minutes about, you know, the Washington Redskins and how he loves baseball or football or whatever it is. Anyway, he goes away. They tell him, you got the job, right? And he, another executive pulls him aside about a month later and says, listen, you want to know why you got the job? He said, everyone voted against you, right? He said, but the CEO said, mate, you know, get that Babowson guy. He's really good. And it was based on nothing other than a commonality about the Washington Redskins. And so it's those sorts of things you really want to drum in the front of your head about please don't think you got in the stock market because you're probably just getting lucky from, you know, a whole raft of things and timing and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So so basically, in summary, you need to build skill and find ways to deal with luck. Uh, I think in... Uh, in golf, they talk about controlling the controllables because there'll always be a luck element. I think, you know, maybe in, yes. a, in a competitive interaction, it's different. You know, um, I, I remember in games of rugby where uh, England were always expected to destroy Scotland. So in that instance, um, it makes sense for the stronger player uh, to minimise disruption, whereas Scotland were always working on this kind of chaos theory to try and in, uh, disrupts the advantage of the stronger player. Um, it's the same in war. Yeah. You know, if you look at things like um, guerrilla warfare or the Vietnam War, you know, the country with less firepower has to use different a different approach. Uh, just on the personal examples there, Steve, um, it is actually quite amazing when you consider the role of luck. I mean, I think I was reading, uh, I don't know which book, maybe a short history of nearly everything with Bill Bryson. It was one of his books. Oh, yeah. And he said, if you have a think about all of the different variables and factors, even for just you to be alive in the first place, it is actually yep. completely mind-boggling, all of the different factors that had to come together for, the, for that arrangement of molecules. It's completely beyond our, our level of comprehension. And even in terms of the life that we have led, I think back through my journey, from an investment point of view, I think we talked on another podcast about um, – you know, when Heather and I made a decision when we were in the corporate world to go hard into the Sydney property market during the financial crisis, so 2007, 8, 9, which it felt deeply uncomfortable, but working on the market cycles theory, taking advantage yep. of the, the panic and uh, uncertainty at that time. And I remember Heather saying at the time, you know, if anyone ever says we're lucky, they can uh, go and swivel basically because <laughs> it didn't it, <laughs> it didn't feel very comfortable at the time. But and yet the reality is that um, you know there is a range of uh, potential outcomes that could have occurred there, and um, you know we we only get to see the one outcome, and that we we have yes. this self serving attribution bias. I mean, I I believe that you know somebody with enough determination will pull through eventually. Um, but all of the different variables that had to come together 
you know, even for, for our journey, uh, even back to the point of, you know, being together in the first place, you know, we were both in yeah. different de facto relationships beforehand. And I guess, you know, my previous partner, she was probably, you know, would have taken a different path. And, you know, she probably thinks that getting rid of me was probably a good piece of luck for her, which is <laughs> pro- probably true. But that, that's a whole, whole other question. But I think, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, all of the different variables that come together to result in the journey that you've had, you know, it's a huge amount of luck that plays a role in that. And I think it's very easy to overestimate your own skill and to underplay uh, yeah. the, the role of luck. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that because Taleb says, Taleb finishes the black swan with a line of, you know, and you're the biggest black swan of all which is exactly what you say, you know, like there's a zillion sperm, guess what, you're the lucky one today, you know. So there, and and as I say, we, you know, that's why, I, look, as I said before, look, I'm not down on economic forecasting, but the fact is there's thousands of bloody variables. You know, let's be honest, how do you first of all go, yeah, I've got all those covered, and then secondly go, and what about the waiting? I mean, you know, the waiting between the variables. Oh, this one should be have more importance than this one. I mean, honestly, you know, it's it's as the, the old saying goes, they predicted eight of the last five recessions. I'm not being down on them, but just simply saying the reason why this is such a good book is because you go, oh, actually, yeah, because it's a really, as I said at the start, it's a really humbling experience to go, well, you know, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because you usually get a bit cocky after you've had a good run and a, your, good la- your good run is, a, you know, often predicated on being extremely lucky. Um, Stephen Jay Gould, who we talk about a bit, said when you look at things like sports, um, you know, golf tournaments, there's not much that separates the top 10 players, right? They, you know, no one really dominates every single time. And he said what it is is winning is, in, is great skill, a great luck imposed on great skill. And so what he sort of says is, look, the skill levels are really the same. It's the luck and the bounce of the ball, and that's what Kahneman says. He says, really, some players, they play in the morning session, there's no wind, the greens are great, you know, guys in the afternoon, they get rain, wind, you know, the, the greens are too fast, all this sort of thing. And he said, and that's what, you know, that's where the luck is involved. And what golfers do, like everybody, is just say, I just keep practicing that swing, right? I just keep practicing the process, and that's what Mabalson ends up with, and says the, in the art of good guesswork, use these, you know, use these principles. Like, look at statistics, look at base rates, you know, blah blah blah. That will come together, and that will be the way that you really succeed. Yes, absolutely. So, hi- highly recommended read. Then Michael Mabalson mm. uh, on the success equation. Now the. Uh, my selection today, uh, it's, a, it's an excellent book available uh, in, the, <laughs> in all good bookstores. At all, at all airports. <laughs> Low Rates, High Returns by Stephen Moriarty and myself. Now, I should say at the outset, um, the, the eight timeless principles that we refer to in the subtitle, um, that is actually Stephen's IP. So um, Stephen actually conceptualised um, these timeless investment principles himself. So uh, if you haven't read the book, there are four thought principles and then four action principles and the idea as the subtitle implies is it's a framework or mental model for building an investment strategy that works in all markets and at all times now as we've said on many uh, previous episodes 
it doesn't mean you'll get the strongest returns over any given time period. But what it is, is a mental model, eight timeless principles that will see you effectively financially unbreakable. And it's um, a, a series of principles that you can apply to all asset classes in all markets and at all times. One of the things uh, that we talk about is taking control of your own money and not just outsourcing your thinking to an advisor or potentially other vested interests. Um, so we talk about the three C's, uh, cost, choice and control, the benefits of managing your own money. But there's um, there are some very important um, parts to uh, this book, most notably, I think at the moment, the concept of market cycles, which seems to be in the current environment, is something that people want uh, to downplay. But history suggests is going to be a very important thing over the decade ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, it, the the market, bull markets always go on longer than you think. Once you actually think the market's overvalued, you can't get that out of your head. And then for the next year or two or even three, you think that you're wrong. And you look wrong until the market crashes and then everybody finds out that, you know, they should have got out five years ago. So just to give you an example, the, the Cape ratio currently sits at about 38 and a half, 38 and a half, 39. In 1999, I think it went from about 34 to 40 in one year. Now, if you go back to 1999, let's say it's 40, right? And it, so it's 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 a... It's currently at the same level that it is now, roughly. 10-year returns for the future from 99 to 2009 are zero, right? Inflation adjusted, you get zero. Now, the sample size is one, right? But what we know is that if you're buying when the market's extremely high, you can have another party for 12 months or two years. The fact is, though, if you're in for 10 years, you're in for a rough trot, Um so that's the that's the importance that I always try to get people to understand, and it's a little bit ties in with um, Mabosan's book because what I'm sort of saying to people is to get good returns from here, you're going to have to be extremely lucky, and I wouldn't be counting on luck to deliver you returns. Now, in 2009, when the market was, uh, the Cape was about 13, what I was saying then was now's a good time to invest and, you know, if you get luck, it'll probably be on the upside, not the downside. And that's the idea, Pete, as you know, of the principles to sort of say to people, how do I ground myself by not going, oh, everyone else is making money, so you know what, I'm just going to jump in and make money. It's like, no, 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 you need a set of principles and but you also need to understand the skill luck equation within there to go, well, if I'm going to do this now, I'm going to hope that I get really lucky. Well, you know, that's not a great investment plan to, to go with. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's a couple of um, interesting concepts here that are probably not very well understood. I think one of the key ones is the concept of the geometric return from investing rather than the average return, which we or the arithmetical average, which people talk about a lot, this sort of average return, 7%, 8%. Um, but a, a lot depends on uh, the price you get in at and also uh, the sequence of returns risk. I think, you know, this is not much talked about. And it's only really mm. when you look at a quilt of returns that it really drills this point home, that um, percentage drawdowns hurt a lot more than increases to your portfolio. And it, it leads you to this, this idea of the, the importance of, 
putting in investment funds into markets that are not overvalued because um, mm. because of the, the the importance of the geometric return, which is the return you get, not not at some arithmetical average number um, that we often hear talked about in the media. Yeah, the average return. People have got to remember the average is a is a statistic. It's not a real thing. It's an abstract thing that we invented. The geometric return is the return you get based on multiplication. And a simple example is saying if you've got $100 in the stock market and you come back and you've made 10%, you've got $110. Now, if you make another 10%, you've got $121. And the reason why is because on the second 10%, you're doing 10% of $110. But your return of 10% plus 10% is 10%. But your return's actually not 10%. It's actually a little bit higher than that. And as you pointed out, it works in reverse where, you know, you go from a dollar to a dollar 20, then you go back to a dollar. The average return is zero, and that's the figure you'll hear in the finance industry, right, the average return. But the geometric return is actually minus 4% because you're falling 20% from a dollar 20, which is 212.24. So you're back to 96 It's a really, really critical point because it ties into this idea of compounding. And why I say, you know, you see those lovely charts in compounding of, oh, you compounded 8% for, you know, 40 years. Look at that. You'll be worth $25 zillion. What they don't put in there is the the volatility, which is that, you know, oh, and if you lose 50% halfway through, guess what? You'll spend, you know, you'll have a lot less than you thought you would. And that's the really, really critical bit about volatility and also about the CAPE, because what I say to people is you get smashed when the CAPE ratio is really high. That's what really kills your returns, that geometric stuff. You can go from an average over 50 years of 8% to 7.8, but in the last year, you could lose half your money, right? But your average return might still be 7.8 or 7.5. People go, oh, well, that's all right. And it's like, well, no, not really, because the last year I lost all my money. And, you know, you and I talk about that in the sequence of returns. It's really, really critical that you you think about those things like the geometric average rather than the arithmetic average. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an important point. I mean, um, you know, and it's been it's become increasingly popular, I've noticed, just in the past two or three years to talk about just having 100% of your portfolio in the stock market all of the time. Yeah. And look, you know, I've got no problem with that. I just think people need to understand what it is um, they're being asked to do there. Because, you know, it was one thing, you know, when the S&P 500 dropped to, you know, the mid 600s about 12 years ago, you know, and it the, the market increased and it got back to a thousand and so on. You know, the, you can see, as you said, if there's if there's going to be some luck there, it's quite likely to be on the upside over a 10 year time horizon. Yeah. But the S&P 500 at 4,300 and the CAPE ratio um, well, you know, off the charts high, you know, pretty much uh, tech yep. trouble territory and a, a range of metrics like price to sales at the highest level in history. I don't know, markets could go higher, but you need to understand that if there's a, a, some luck that comes along, it could actually uh, impact you much more to the downside. Look, And, you know, this is where you have to build your own strategy. And one of the things we talked about in the book, Steve, which was a relatively a new area to me and an interesting one was this concept of the Enneagram assessment and personality. Um, and it, it really shines a light to me on 
why you get so many sort of disagreements and arguments about what are the best approaches to managing your own money, to investing, uh, how you live your life. And in particular, um, several personality types that we see repeatedly, especially in our coaching programs, those being um, the types uh, three, five and seven in the Enneagram assessment. And I think um, I found this is a, a very useful mental framework for helping to understand your behavior and the behavior of others, particularly as it relates to money, but actually just life in general. And um, I think that that is a, an interesting aspect because it leads on to your decision making. So I, I think that's that's another interesting aspect of the book, uh, which I found particularly useful to refer back to. And, and I think especially for me, just getting a better understanding of why, you know, I approach managing my money one way, but somebody else might look at things completely differently. Yeah, usually your wife. <laughs> yes. Um, well, most of well, most divorces are over money, um, and it's generally about well, you know, I want to spend it on a holiday. Well, I don't. I want to save it up because you know we could break our leg next year or something. So, but yeah, it is peak. But again, what I'm trying to reinforce there on people is you don't want to bring your personality into the stock market. It's a when you look at things like the Kelly Criterion you realise that it's really a straight-up numbers game, right, we, because we like stories. Forget the stories, right? There's a story for every bull market and there's a story for every bear market. What you see is, as we talked about last week with Maggie Ma, is decade good returns, decade of not-so-good returns, decade of good returns, decade of bad returns, right? There's your average. And so we always like to have stories around it and that in itself falls into the economics but the big thing is your personality. And as you know, Warren Buffett said, if you can't control your emotions, you can't control your money. So that's why we sort of coach people and talked about it in the book, because I personally think the finance industry gets it wrong, not of their own volition, because there's so many goddamn regulations these days, but they get the idea of risk wrong and they equate it with age. Are you married? Have you got two kids? You know, what are you earning? My argument is that's irrelevant because what Kelly Criterion said is, no, 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 listen, it's about the numbers, right? That's what it's about. Don't worry about your age. If you're 65 and retired, well, the stock market's not going to go, oh, well, we'll be treat Pete differently because he's 65 and retired. If the CAPE ratio is at 10, yes, it could get cheaper, but, again, there's a lot more probability that you're going to make a lot more money rather than, you know, lose it all, especially if, as we talk about in the book, is, you know, selecting countries that are cheap and sectors and, you know, using things like macro evaluation tools like CAPE. And so, again, it, what we try to do is say to people, just be aware of what your personality is and please don't bring it to the stock market. Yeah, completely. Actually, it's a really good point. We talked about even before we jumped on it about um, you know, involving your spouse in your financial decisions because we, we've all heard these stories of you know somebody, well, you know, you see the, the, the type three achievement focused personality type, they achieve everything they ever wanted from a financial point of view and then they find out their spouse wasn't on board and they disappear off or at the other end of yeah. the spectrum, you know, people who focus on a frugality approach and they think um, mm. you know they get to a point in life where they can get by on a, a low level of income and they find that's fantastic for them but their spouse wasn't on board with the whole idea all along you know yeah. you, so you know try and see it as a 
a, a journey that you share together because you, you need to both be on the same page ideally and it doesn't always follow with the Enneagram assessment that two people have the same goals and personality type I think uh, as you mentioned there the, the real key to the whole thing and this is the first of the eight principles is taking a systematic approach I think if you try to make ad hoc decisions from a financial perspective you'll find life is very difficult when markets are being disrupted or falling and you'll you'll make emotional and less informed decisions and uh, one of the other key concepts that we we consider right at the end of the book is just the concept of the three wells of wealth so we've covered this in another podcast but essentially we all need a bucket of money to cover our living costs but then we also ideally need uh, funds to cover but often uh, more liquid investments that cover our uh, lifestyle costs over the next, say, two to five years. And then you've got your legacy and longer term investments and assets. So there's a bit of a broad framing approach there as well to managing your finances that is worth considering. But I I guess the overall most important thing is to, to build it all together into a systematic, ideally written investment plan that you're on board with, your spouse is on board with, and you can follow. Because I think if you do that, you'll eliminate lots of the potential uh, for making bad mistakes. And as we always stress in the book, focus on risk first. I think people often focus on the upside without considering, well, hang on, what could actually be the risks here, the black swans, the unseen risks? So I think that, I mean, in summary, Steve, buy the book. What do you think? Yeah, mate. Yeah, buy the book. Um, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Loved it. Five stars. <laughs> got a hard, yeah. I've got plenty of hard copies if anybody wants one. Yeah. And look, and people will um, they'll reach their own conclusions about the best approach for themselves. But the idea really is a framework or mental model for you to build an investment plan. And um, remember, of course, as well, the, the, the concept of getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. You, know, you, you don't want mm. to get towards your uh, financial goals and then uh, leave yourself exposed to unforeseen events. So I think that's about it for today, Steve. So next week, we've got two more books on our top 10 investment books list, uh, numbers seven and eight next week. So uh, thanks for joining today. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Low Rates, High Returns from all good bookstores or Amazon online, probably if you're in a Sydney lockdown. Uh, So thanks for joining today and we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.